the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. There is a company called Lush, a brand called Lush. Do you even know what that brand is, by the way? Of course I know what Lush is. They have these incredible bath bombs and body products, and they're they're like vegan and uh, cruelty-free and very luxurious. Yes, I know Lush very well. Vegan, cruelty-free bath bombs? Is that what we're speaking of here? Yep, and other bath products, yes. Okay. I never thought of them as vegan, but okay. Uh, But here's what they're doing. Here's the interesting thing. They are quitting social media, which is no small deal when you are a worldwide brand. A lot of your branding these days happens through social media. So listen to this clip that talks about this decision, and then I'd like for us to discuss it a little bit. Lush is one of the most colorful and glittery brands out there, known for its bath bombs and cruelty-free soaps. A fixture on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook, where they boast more than 5 million combined followers. But now the cosmetics brand is pulling the plug on social media completely. Lush's chief digital officer saying in a statement, As an inventor of bath bombs, I pour all my efforts into creating products that help people switch off, relax, and pay attention to their well-being. Social media platforms have become the antithesis of this aim, with algorithms designed to keep people scrolling and stop them from switching off and relaxing. The company adding they feel especially resolved to tackle the issue in light of recent testimony from social media whistleblowers. The choices being made inside of Facebook are disastrous for our children, for our public safety, for our privacy, and for our democracy. And that is why we must demand Facebook make changes. Lush says they'll sign out from Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Snapchat until these platforms can provide a safer environment for their users. All right, so they're talking about losing lots of followers, lots of money by getting off of Facebook, but they're kind of taking a stand. They're saying, uh, we believe that uh, part of our our vision or part of our role is to um, give people relaxation. And Facebook particularly, but social media in general, works against that with their algorithms and something we've talked about. So on a grand scale, Aubrey, what do you think about this this, uh brand to kind of putting their money where their mouth is and getting off of social media. Man, I everything in me is like, don't do it. You're <laughs> going to lose so much money. You're going to lose so much business. Like it is so I, I really feel two very strong things about this. One, I want to like applaud them and stand up and be like, amen. This is amazing. This is what other giant companies like this need to do because the companies that actually make the money for social media if they start pulling back, that's going to force social media to change. And so I do really applaud and appreciate. I think it's right. I agree that social media causes so much stress. It is the antithesis of relaxation in my own life. I would love to get off social media. There's a lot of times I'm like, maybe I'm done. But then I'm like, they're going to lose millions of dollars. 
They're going to yeah. lose millions of customers. They're going to lose millions of opportunities to spread their message into the world. And so I don't know. I don't know. I worry about in the end, if the money doesn't follow this, will this be a lasting change? And is this actually something other companies would ever do? I don't know. It's pretty radical. What do you think, Brian? It is. Uh, there's the cynic in me. Can I start with my cynicism? Please, let's there's, hear it. There's the cynic in me that says they've done some sort of um, uh, some sort of research that says if we get ahead of this, we could like actually make money by being the people who don't. Uh, you know, who were the, we're the company off of social media. And then people are like, Oh, I'll go with them. You know, so that's the cynic in me. But the bigger deal for me is no, this is an important step, I think, because Aubrey, uh, they are putting their money where their mouth is. You've just written a book, right? You wrote yes. a book. And what's one of the main, and there's nothing, there's, this is a good thing. This is not a bad thing. But what are one of the main mechanisms for selling your book? It's, Facebook, it's Twitter, oh, it's Instagram. Absolutely. It's because there's, you know, things have changed. Like there's no more bookstores like there used to be. There's no, but I, that's just true of so many people. Correct. What you're selling, you sell on social media. Exactly. And so for this, uh, this brand to say, listen, social media now is having an adverse effect to, uh, it goes against our values. We value yeah. people uh, relaxing and that social media goes against this. So particularly with Facebook, we're going to get off of it until they change. I, I think it's, uh, it raises other things about companies putting their money where their mouth is and saying, we believe uh, in in this and therefore we're willing to lose out a lot of money. Uh, this is kind of tangential, but it's it's what I've struggled with when I was reading the story about the NBA, the National Basketball Association. We got all these people making these stands, but they, they have basically put the kibosh on saying anything bad about the communist regime in China and what they're doing mm. because basketball is so popular over there and they would yeah. lose billions of dollars. Uh, if they got cut off from China. And so that's where you start to go. Where do we as companies stand up for our values? And where mm -hmm. do we go? Uh oh, this is going to cost us. I, it's a hard conversation. But Aubrey, let's, let's spin this personal. Uh, do you think just as a brand would say it's bad for uh, the mental health of people for social media? Do you think we as individuals need to take that stand and say, listen, I'm going to get off. It's done. I'm off yeah. social media. I'm off Ugh. Facebook. Is it time? I so get torn about this. Because there is this part of me that's like, you know, it, obviously, if it weren't for selling books, like I would just be done. Like sometimes I feel that way. But then I think, and yet social media is where the people are. It's where the next generation is. And we're, we cannot expect a movement of like Gen Zers to just be done with social media. It's not going to happen. And so do you, I mean, this is sort of the age old question. Do you try to fight the culture or you try to use cultural tools and make cultural bridges in order to build relationships in order to change culture that way. Do you know what I'm saying? So this yeah. is, this is a complicated question. I think what it comes down to is we, we talked about before, but like taking social media rest, taking mm. social media Sabbath, making sure your social media is in submission to Jesus Christ, like putting it in its proper place and then uh, moving in social media uh, with that posture so that you're encouraging people, you're not being sucked in, you're not on it too much during the day, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like being very aware of your own soul and your own tendencies for consumerism, that kind of thing. Um, I I just don't think it's realistic for everyone to pull off as much right. as sometimes I'm like, I want, I'm out, you know? Yeah. I, I don't, it's complicated. It's just where people are now. And I, you can't not be where people are if you hope to build relationships with people and show them the love of Jesus. I think what becomes important also is for people to be honest about what is it doing to your own soul? Yeah, that's good. Uh, 
you know, are you finding yourself angry? Are you an angrier person? Are mm. you, uh, are you a more negative person? Are you lashing out at people? Those become the times where you say, you know what? I should, um, back away again. Uh, at the end of this segment, I'm probably going to read our, our social media handles for our show. Like there's an importance yeah. to yeah. Uh, these types of things. But I also think on an individual, like I've told you before, I've backed away from Facebook some because I was just getting discouraged by it. I was discouraged by what people I was close to were saying, uh, not to me, but just in general. Uh, and I found it to be not good for my own soul. So I said, yeah. you know what? I'm going to back away from Facebook, but I stay on Twitter and Instagram or whatever else. And so I think every person out there, let's end it with this. You just need to be honest about what role is social media. You need to do your research about how algorithms work mm-hmm. and these types of things and yeah. then be honest about it. And then okay. if you're looking for a good bath bomb, apparently Lush yeah. is your place to go. Yeah, they're... you should be thinking about Lush for your uh, the women in your life, Brian, for Christmas. It's a great organization. That felt sexist. I might enjoy a good bath bomb. You <laughs> I see, you're right. You're right. I don't know. You're right. You're right. Your son might too. Get, get bath bombs from Lush for the whole family. There you go. Well, coming up next, Dan Stringer. He is the author of a new book called Struggling with Evangelicalism, Why I Want to Leave and What It Takes to Stay. A fascinating conversation. We're going to have that next with Dan Stringer here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, And Aubrey, I know we've had other guests from Hawaii, but every time we do, uh, I think to myself, man, Hawaii sounds really nice this time of year. Sounds really good. (laughs) I don't. I'm like, I would so much rather be in the freezing cold, (laughs) dark Chicago than be in Hawaii. Oh, absolutely. So again, calling us from Hawaii is the pastor of theological formation at Wellspring uh, Covenant Church, also campus minister with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And what we're having him on is to talk about his new book called Struggling with Even Evangelicalism, why I want to leave and what it takes to stay. His name is Dan Stringer. Dan, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty good. Thanks for having me on. It's our pleasure. And Dan, we gave a little bit of your background, but we'd love for our audience to get to know you a little bit better. So why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I am a pastor and a campus minister. And a lot of my background that I write about in the book has to do with growing up in five countries on three continents as a child of medical missionaries. I was born here in Hawaii, but for most of my childhood, after the age of seven, we lived outside of the U.S., and um, that was a big part of my my growing up, and uh, eventually made it to, to Wheaton College and started off as a social worker before becoming a pastor and now an author. And um, I love the title of your new book, Struggling with Evangelicalism, Why I Want to Leave and What It Takes to Stay. I feel like it's such a good word for such a time as this. I would love to know what led you to actually write this. Well, it was a big thing to just struggle myself. And I, you know, grappled with what does evangelicalism mean to me? Am I part of it? Am I not? Mm. In college, I learned that I kind of was, but over the last 20 years, you know, every time an election year comes around, there's all kinds of ways that the word is used that don't seem to describe me. And yet the word can also describe me in other ways when it comes to church and, you know, the denomination I'm part of, the organization I work for. So just trying to grapple with that over the 
the past number of years, started out writing blog posts and shorter articles. And eventually there was so much to process that it, it became a book. There you go. And Dan, you, you talk about uh, why you wanted to leave uh, evangelicalism. Walk us through that kind of struggle. Why, why did you uh, even consider or think about wanting to leave? That's a great question. I think that a lot of it has to do with a sense of not belonging or not fitting in, particularly uh, when there are certain ways that maybe I'm expected to conform. Um, I'm an Asian American. My mom's Chinese American. My dad's a white American. But in certain spaces, I certainly don't feel like I, I fit in, whether it's politically or depending on the conversation, theologically. Mm-hmm. So, there's been certain times when I would certainly feel like I wanted to find greener pastures if there was any. I know friends who left evangelicalism and found other Christian spaces where they could follow Jesus in a more wholehearted way. So there are certainly points along the journey where for me, it felt like, I wonder if there's a better place besides evangelicalism for me. Hmm. Mm. And I don't want to have you spoil too much of the book, Dan, but I would love to just hear more of that journey. Like, how did you end up answering that question? Yeah, I think a big part of it took a while to even figure out what the word means and how it gets used to be an evangelical, to inhabit evangelicalism as a noun. And so I think one of the pieces of the book that helped, um, with my processing was separating evangelicalism as a brand or a label from evangelicalism as a space Mm. or a spiritual habitat or locale where my spiritual life is at home. And so even though those things tend to overlap, sometimes the brand is much more narrow. A brand is what you buy versus a space is where you live. And so even if I wasn't buying the brand, I was living and still live in the space. It's where my paycheck comes from. It's where I spend my <laughs> vocational life as well as my relationships. So it wasn't something easy to process because of all those mixed feelings and that tension between you know, the pros and the cons. And it wasn't something that was a clear slam dunk either way. Yeah. And Dan, I, I don't know if you deal with this in the book, but let's just back up a little bit. How would you even define evangelicalism? Like people might be like, I've heard that word thrown around both, like you said, in a space, but also a brand. But mm-hmm. what's kind of your working definition for evangelicalism? That's a great question. I will try to do it as quickly as I can because <laughs> it takes up a whole chapter in the book. And um, essentially for me, I am defining evangelicalism as a place where you make your home um, or an evangelical is someone whose spiritual life is located in uh, the type of Christianity known particularly as evangelicalism, which brings up the question, well, what type of Christianity is that? And I use the idea from a historian, Kristen Dumais, who who uh, describes evangelicalism being four things at the same time. And the four things are a theological category, a cultural movement, a white political brand, as well as a globally diverse movement. And so the problem with the word evangelical is that it can be used accurately to describe four different things. Mm. And so if any of those four things are part of where you uh, make your spiritual home, whether in church or with, um, you know, the type of books you read or the type of sermons you listen to, 
then I would say that you're inhabiting an evangelical space, but you don't have to use that word mm. necessarily to be um, someone who inhabits evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Dan, I, I feel like I've got two listeners in mind. Uh, one, those folks who are kind of like you, you're working at the evangelical church, you're in this, in this space, but you long to see it be different. Um, so let me just start with that. Uh, for that person, they're in evangelicalism, they're not leaving, um, but they long to see something change. I guess, where should we start? Yeah, the reason why the book has four sections is because I believe that um, there are four postures that we can take that help us to even discern where God might be leading us in terms of how to become a um, someone who inhabits the space in a realistic, but also um, redemptive way, I would say. And the four postures are awareness, appreciation, repentance, and renewal. And I believe that once we've, you know, taken some time to practice those four things that I outline in the book, then it'll help us to have a better sense of where can I be part of the solution? How can I leave this place better than I found it? But before we get on to just you know, trying to fix everything like evangelicals are so good at trying to do. (laughs) It's important to also take stock of what's actually the case beyond just what we wish or ideally hope would be the case. But what is actually evangelical, what is evangelicalism actually like? And once we have a better awareness of that, I think it's a starting point. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great word, Dan. And then let me just follow up with for the for the listener who's maybe on the other end of that journey, like they're just done. They've had enough of they maybe grew up in evangelicalism. They've seen too much of the just the uh, systemic sin and the corruption and the the politicalization and they're just over it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I guess I want you to pastor them a little bit. Like what words of, of comfort might you bring to that person? Because obviously you've sent some of that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing I would say is that you have options. You have options. Evangelicalism is not the only type of Christianity. It's not even the only type of Protestant Christianity. So before you leave, I would just encourage you to consider what the options are. Uh, one option might be to find another space that um, has greener grass. Another option might be to make sure that we take stock of the positive sides of where we've been nurtured and raised in our faith. And it could very well be that the negative outweighs the positive. And I totally understand that. And I have some really great friends and family members who um, have either gone to the Catholic tradition or a different Protestant tradition, and that can be life-giving, but not necessarily. It's not necessarily um, an easy call. So hopefully there are people that you can discern and pray through such a big decision without just um, making a drastic call without um, taking stock of all of what you might be leaving in terms of spiritual resources. But if it, if it is something that's a really easy decision, you know, there's no mixed feelings. It's pretty much all bad. Then I would say, yeah, remember that, you know, there are other spaces and you're not leaving Jesus behind just because Mm. you're leaving evangelicalism behind. Mm. Dan Stringer, again, is the author of a new book called Struggling with Evangelicalism, Why I Want to Leave and What It Takes to Stay. You can get that book wherever it is. You get your books. And 
You talked about evangelicalism as a space, but also a brand. And, and evangelicalism as a brand is getting a rightfully so, I'd say, lots of black eyes right now, right? Lots of um, critique. Uh, let's go down into the future, five years, 10 years. What are some changes you'd love to see in evangelicalism, the brand, if even possible, that you think would make it more of what it was, what it's always supposed to be? That's a great question. And I think part of my struggle is whether that brand can even be redeemed because of the way it's been hijacked and co-opted by something very narrow that only represents a small slice of the evangelical scene. I certainly hope that anytime our um, approach to Christianity is known and talked about, that it would be known for our discipleship, our love for Christ, our desire to see our faith come alive and to share that in applicable ways that really change lives and make a difference. Um, I don't know if the brand can realistically represent that since it's become such a political um, way of describing, you know, a narrow segment of white Americans. Um, So my sense in terms of this book was really to think about how do we redeem the space more than the brand? I'd be fine if the brand was redeemed. That would certainly help. But I think the space is what matters more because as harmful as the brand is and as damaging and as misleading as it can be, I think the space actually has more power to either harm or heal someone. So that's kind of where I focus my energy is how do we create a a healthier space? And if that affects the brand, great. But if not... um, I'm still focused on what kind of uh, spiritual home we're creating for people when they when they join our churches and and uh, faith communities. Mm, that's great, Dan. And I, I guess with that in mind, and this is a large large question, but we do have a lot of ministry leaders and pastors that listen to this show. And for those who are concerned about creating a better space, a healthier space um, of Jesus followers and discipleship, it, I don't even know how to ask this question because I don't want to say like. Tell, give us tips, but, but give us some starting places or maybe even some questions that we can be asking to, to create a better space than we have. I think one of the biggest things is simply to know that you are in an evangelical space, if you are, and to start thinking about it, talking about it that way, so that it's not just generic, neutral Christianity but it's a particular type of Christianity. And once we're aware of that, once we're starting to know more about our pros and our cons and what makes us who we are, then I think we're in a better position, similar to if you have a a self-awareness of who you are and your personality and the way that you communicate and give and receive love. I think that helps us to be more responsible with our decisions. I think it applies collectively to the church as well. Just, knowing more about what are the patterns that we keep slipping into historically as well as in the present time? What are the things that make us um, still worth being part of as well? The things that are our strengths, our love for scripture, our desire to make things uh, relevant. Um, So a lot of it just involves taking stock of who we are. But even if you don't use the word evangelical out loud to describe yourself, because I can <laughs> I can see why in certain situations you wouldn't, and I, I certainly don't use it all the time. I think it helps to understand on the inside that we are part of something that's a particular expression of Protestant Christianity mm. and not just, you know, 
the Christianity that everyone in the world experiences. Yeah. And Dan, being a campus minister for InterVarsity, uh, I would assume then that you are rubbing up against, um, you know, college kids or y- the younger generation. What are you hearing from them? Are they um, engaging in the church? Are they kind of uh, is is this kind of rejection of evangelicalism or even of the faith, even on a much deeper scale, um, a bigger movement in the younger uh, demographics? What are you seeing from students and, and young people right now? Well, I think the glass half full is that evangelicalism is changing demographically to be more diverse, particularly when you look at evangelical Christians under the age of 30. There's so much more diversity in terms of racial ethnic background, for example, than those of us who are 40 and up, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think it's really encouraging to me when I see folks you know, join a fellowship on campus for the first time. Maybe they didn't grow up in a Christian home. And so their first experience might be in a very healthy space that's holistically thinking about both evangelism and social justice, both personal and collective faith identity. So that really encourages me. Um, At the same time, the glass half empty is that we still have some of these same patterns that folks can... um, experience when they join particular communities that have not wrestled with these things and are still making the same mistakes. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's really a mixed bag and it really just depends what type of evangelical space you're part of. Mm. Mm. And Dan, um, before we let you go, we've so appreciated having you here today. Where can our listeners find you find more of what um, you're putting out into the world? Where can they find your books? Yeah, so the easiest place is my website, danstringer.net, which has all the links to where you can read about the book, find it, buy it, um, as well as some of the other things I've written. If you want to follow me on Twitter, that's probably where I'm the most active social media-wise, at Rev Dan Stringer. But you can find all that at my website, danstringer.net. Awesome. Dan, again, is a pastor of theological formation at Wellspring Covenant Church in Hawaii, also campus minister with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and the author of this new book we've been talking about called Struggling with Evangelicalism, Why I Want to Leave and What It Takes to Stay. As he just said, you can find him at danstringer.net and at Rev Dan Stringer, at Rev Dan Stringer. Dan, it's always good to have another Wheaton grad on. So uh, we're just a little uh, yeah. a little Wheaton party here, but hopefully Hawaii's treating you well. And thanks for joining us today, man. It's great to meet you. Absolutely. This has been really fun to be on. I appreciate you having me. It's our pleasure. And you're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to be looking towards the weekend, and Christmas gets a day closer with each day here. So uh, an exciting time of year. Hopefully you've got a great weekend in front of you planned, and hopefully it involves heading to church on Sunday, but also spending time with your family. And uh, yeah, looking forward to it. All right, Aubrey, I found a really challenging story earlier this week that I've been wanting to talk about. Uh, let me read some of the story for you, uh, and then I want you just to respond to it. Because one of the things we talk about in churches all the time is the importance of forgiveness and why forgiveness um, is just vitally important. But yet, when yeah. it when it actually lands on our doorstep, where we've been hurt, where uh, bad things have happened to us because of the actions of other people. Uh, 
that's where this idea of forgiveness gets really difficult and really real. Like, really, yeah. I have to forgive. And so with that in mind, here's the story. Here's the headline. Family of beloved uh, Minnesota pastor killed in DUI accident forgives drunk driver in the courtroom. The family and grieving congregation of a Minnesota pastor who died after a drunk driver rear-ended his car extended forgiveness to the man responsible for the clergyman's death, stunning an entire courtroom. In November 2020, a 58-year-old uh, David Nelson was going nearly 70 miles per hour in a 30-mile-per-hour zone with a blood alcohol level of 0. .267 when his pickup truck rear-ended 69-year-old Verlin Strange's Jeep. Uh, Strange, the longtime pastor of First Baptist Church in Clearbrook, was killed in the crash, and his wife was seriously injured. Wow. At Nelson's court hearing on November the 14th, where he was sentenced to almost three years in prison for vehicular homicide, uh, Strange's family and congregation shared words of forgiveness. Mm. The topic, are you ready for this? the topic of the pastor's final sermon the Sunday before he died. Come on. Verlin's widow, daughter, and son walked up to Nelson to hug him after the hearing. They told him they forgave him and would be praying for him and his family. They stressed mm -hmm. that he needs to forgive himself. We have been forgiven so much. How could we not forgive you? Church uh, member Rick Moore said, we forgive you, Mr. Nelson. Strange's daughter said, as hard as it was at first, we want you to know that we've been praying for you for the past year because we know your life has been impacted by the biggest mistake of your life. Let wow. me stop there. There's more to the story. Aubrey, that's fascinating. Like we talk, I've yes. preached sermons on, on forgiveness. Yeah. You've preached sermons on yeah. forgiveness. Yeah. To read what this family particularly Ooh. did, but also the church did, is really kind of putting the gospel. It's putting it's putting your theology uh, in your everyday life. This yeah, could not have been easy, but it's it's such a an unbelievable testimony to everybody who was there. I mean, this is one of those things. Anytime you see something like this, is one of those things where you go, oh, "Okay, this could only be the power of the Holy Spirit." Like to be able to say, "I forgive the person who." killed my spouse or, you know, who killed my kid. I, in, in fact, Brian, I, I think it's okay for me to share this story, but you know, we have someone who's been on the show before a guy by the name of Davy Blackburn, whose mm -hmm. uh, wife was murdered several years ago. And he recently was in court and forgave uh, one of the men accused of partaking in murdering his wife. And I just think it is only, the power of God that can help someone to do that. And part of it is, of course, knowing how much we've been forgiven. But I think it's more than just the knowledge, right? Like there is something about the spirit of God at work in someone's life, allowing this to happen because this could not come e you know, easy at all. And I think it's a word for all of us. Like, I, you know, it makes, it makes me convicted about the petty things that I kind of don't forgive over. Right. Yeah, and like yeah. you kind of go, how dare I withhold forgiveness from something really kind of insignificant and shallow when here are such godly examples of this pastor's family forgiving for something very, very significant. Yeah. Yeah. It is uh, you. Everything in your humanity says that they should hold it against this guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they should want this guy's life to be ruined. Uh, they should be going after him. And in, rea in, in reality, what they've done here is they've said, listen, uh, 
our bitterness is not going to bring our father, our pastor, our husband back. Right. Uh, and we have been forgiven much. So we uh, we are now offering you forgiveness. There's still consequences. This man, uh, Mr. Nelson, David Nelson, I believe was his name, is still going to prison. Uh, and he still has to face the consequences yeah. Yeah. for his actions. Uh, but can you imagine? Let's talk about what uh, David Nelson must have felt in that moment. Aubrey, mm. you're in that courtroom. You are respond. He's not denying his culpability in this. He's what he was not arguing for no jail time. He's like, I did this. I'm wrong. I'm 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 sorry. Yeah. Uh, but you're in there. And then this church and these kids and the adult kids and the wife who was also injured come and offer their words of forgiveness to you. What what would that have done? What do you think that did to him? I mean, you know, I can't imagine it did anything except make him ball his eyes out because you have to be so I mean, the weight of that kind of guilt has to really be heavy. And then on top of that, here you are facing the family, knowing that you've taken the life of, you know, their beloved dad, husband, etc. So then there's that guilt on top of you. And I imagine there's a sense of shame. There's a sense of just like, um, probably your defenses are up quite a bit in a moment like that too, almost like a self-preservation. And then to just be told you've been forgiven. I don't know. I can't imagine you do anything but just like break down bawling your eyes out. Yeah. And, I, I, and hopefully, I mean, ideally, it's a sense of freedom. But then also when they talk about the love of Jesus compelling them to forgive, mm. hopefully this moves this man to seeing God as a forgiving God and, and hopefully uses it in his life to draw him closer to himself. Yeah. I think this is uh, the, the gospel being shown to this man in real time. And yeah. like you said, he has to be yeah. changed. Uh, Aubrey, let's, let's end this story here. The very fact that this pastor who everybody had huge respect for, uh, they talk about how he used to read through the Bible six times mm. a year. Hello. Like, that's crazy. Uh, wow. But what do you do with the fact that his Whoa, final seriously. sermon that week was unforgiveness? Isn't, doesn't that kind of take your breath away a little bit? Yeah, it's breathtaking because it just makes you, it makes you think that the Lord went before him and that um, yes. it's not a coincidence that that was his last sermon, that there was something very ordained and very sovereign about that. And what an incredible legacy to leave and then to actually like, um, and then something that your family has to model. It's very, very powerful. Yeah. So it powerful is the right word. Uh, we all can be challenged. I think as pastors, we can also realize I might be preaching my last sermon this week. What am I going to say with what Seriously. passion am I going to bring? Uh, but I brought this story up because when I read it, I was challenged by it going, could I do that? Yeah, could I really definitely. do that? What do I really believe about the power of forgiveness, about the source of forgiveness? Uh, really an unbelievable story. Well, we got one more hour left here before it is the weekend. Here's the question we're going to ask when we come back. What do most Christians believe about the afterlife? We're going to have that conversation next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Friday evening. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We hope you have had a wonderful week. We're so glad that you're with us. 
Brian, earlier this week, we, we uh, covered a Pew survey where uh, some evangelicals and, well, 6,500 Americans, including about 1,500 evangelicals, were talking about um, God in suffering and what they believe about God in suffering. And Pew actually did another survey. If you're wondering what Pew is, kind of the go-to research firm, they surveyed 6,500 people about what happens after we die? And what they found was really, really fascinating. So before we dive into what most of the world in America thinks right now, uh, you, Pastor, if I were to come and ask you, what would happen to me after I die? What would you say? Yeah, that's uh, that one will get you into it very quickly. I would say... Um, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we have the hope of spending eternity with him. Yeah. Uh, and that that is, um, that's not what it's all about, but that's a large portion, right? Like we want to spend eternity in the presence yeah. of our heavenly father where there is no more sin and no more death and no yeah. more pain. And so yeah. that is the offer made to us. I would then also say that apart from Jesus, uh, or I would say that when we don't follow Jesus, then, then we're going to spend eternity apart from him. That the Bible talks about this separation mm -hmm. uh, of this hell. Uh, if the person wanted to push me for exact details of heaven and hell, I would say I, I've got ideas, but I don't know. But yeah. I don't think that that's what matters in yeah. this conversation. I think uh, the Bible paints a beautiful picture of heaven and it paints a terrible picture of hell. And, and mm. that Jesus is the answer to either. Mm. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I want to be honest with people, right? Like that's a difficult conversation. Well, doesn't that make you judgmental or this or that? Yeah. And I actually told somebody once, I said, I hope I'm wrong. Like, right, I hope that right. we have a wrong reading of scripture and that right. when I get to heaven one day, everybody's there, but that's mm -hmm. not, that's not a, a accurate reading of what we see in the Bible in front yeah. of us. And so it would be malpractice of us to go, Oh, don't worry about it. There's right. Nothing. Like we have to be honest about it. Again, I don't want people to spend eternity apart from Jesus. And if right. that's not how it ends up, then great. Let's all throw a party. Yeah. Uh, but everything about scripture seems to point to uh, there's a here and a there. There's a narrow road. There's a wide road. There's yeah. a, and so we yep. just have to be honest about it. So that's where I would go with it. How about you? Brian, you're such a good pastor. I feel like I'm going to come to you for a lot of my pastoral questions. I think that was a fantastic answer. I love that. Um, so I would, I'm just going to say whatever you would say, whatever Brian Fromm says, that, <laughs> that is what I say. You know, it, it, here's why it's a complicated question. I would say it, this question was maybe not complicated 20 years ago, but I think more and more Christians, and we'll find what this research actually shows us, no longer believe in hell, or at least not, not, uh, hell or heaven in the way that we've thought about hell or heaven mm -hmm. in the past. And so sometimes as pastors, we're like, actually, there's a lot that I don't know. Um, here is what I do know, which is yes. the Bible, like you said, is very, very clear about there being um, a place mm -hmm. or an experience for those who are with Jesus or are not with Jesus. And so if you boil it down uh, to very, very basic claims, right? I want to be on the side of Jesus, That's right. you know? And so I, anyway, it, but it is certainly an interesting conversation, but here's what's fascinating about this survey. So 73% of Americans 
believe in heaven. And again, this was a survey of almost 6,500 adults, American adults, 1,400 of those are evangelicals. Okay. Mm. 73% believe in heaven. 62% believe in hell. This is similar to what the research showed in 2017. But this is interesting. One in four Americans don't believe in heaven or hell. 7% believe in a different kind of afterlife, while 17% don't believe in any afterlife at all. Mm. I think that is so interesting. Brian, do you have any guesses about why some folks do, don't believe? I mean, wh- where do we get where do we get this? Where how does this research show up? Ah, it's a really good question. I think culturally, uh, it's really frowned upon to to talk about anything that has to do with judgment, yeah. to talk to anything that has to do with uh, you're out, right? Like me telling somebody you're out, like, how dare you? That's arrogant. And I understand that. But you think about how our culture uh, speaks of anything, any intolerance like that or whatever. Whereas we would say, no, we're just speaking truth and we want everybody to hear this. Like, it's important that you know. But I think even Christians are pushing away from being thought of as those people who are like, well, you know, um, uh, you're in and you're out. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's at the heart of it. Uh, I think we live in a very materialistic society that doesn't give much thought to um, to things mm. of the eternal. My guess is when you and Kevin lived in Africa and lived in a de- very different setting, they were probably much more in tune to the idea of um, of eternity. Absolutely. Uh, and, and just spiritual warfare in a spiritual world. Absolutely. A hundred percent. We live in the West in a culture of materialism and materialisticness. That's not a word, but you get what I mean. Yes. And uh, I think that makes it so that we don't talk a lot about heaven and hell. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's interesting, Brian, because I do worry sometimes about like our, I don't want to remove the urgency from our theology about heaven and hell. And I also don't want to make the concept of hell more comfortable for people. Like sometimes I feel like I'm hearing that happen culturally too. But the reality is, like you said earlier, we don't know that much. And so it does seem tricky to do anything except... um Except talk about what Jesus talks about, that mm-hmm. that we know we're invited to follow him, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And so we want to experience life with him. But I do think you're on to something about how our culture doesn't like to talk about judgment and doesn't like to talk about the idea of something scary like hell. And it seems a little unbelievable, so it's hard to wrap our minds around. But for people who do believe in heaven, this came up from the Pew Research. I think it's really, really fascinating Two-thirds of U.S. adults believe deceased people are reunited with loved ones in heaven. 69% believe that people are free from suffering. Um, So this is basically some statistics about what people think about heaven, okay? Uh, People believe that you can meet God in heaven. A little over half of people believe you'll have a perfectly healthy body in heaven. Mm -hmm. Um, A little less than half believe you're reunited with pets or animals you knew on earth when you're in heaven. 44% say you can see what's happening on earth. 43% think you become angels or you can become an angel. 25% believe you're able to have relationships with people who are still living on earth. These are the ghosts that I believe in, Brian. And 15% can choose whether they want to stop existing. 15% believe that. That one is really interesting. So where do we get ideas about heaven? Because not all of this is in scripture. I think some of this is what we've learned from the movies or what we hope for and what we long for. But it's not actually... Uh, founded in in biblical truth. Yeah, I think it's. I think you say one of the 
things that you said is correct there that we get it from pop culture. We mm-hmm. get it from movies, books, mm-hmm. whatever else it might be. Aubrey, to be honest with you, I think we just create these things. Yeah. Like, yeah. what do I want heaven to be like? I want to be reunited with my loved ones. So when you ask me, what is heaven like? I'm reunited. You know, I want to be able to look back on earth and see what's going on. Yeah. I'd love to see my dog that passed away a couple years right. ago. That would be wonderful if the day. But like you said, these aren't things we read or don't read in scripture. They're just things that I, so honestly, I think we create heaven in our own image. <laughs> like what we want. Wow. I would like preach, there Brian. to be lots of baseball. <laughs> so you know what? In my mind, uh, Field of Dreams had it right. And so yeah. <laughs> we could kind of go from there, whereas you probably want something else. So I think the answer to your question is yes, movies and such. But I also just think we create it. And uh, yeah. what do I wish heaven was? Uh, but the big picture to this conversation, Aubrey, is when it comes to heaven and the harder conversation about hell, we have to be honest about what the Bible says mm-hmm. and then just re- and then be honest about what we don't know, what the Bible yeah. doesn't tell us. Yeah. And and have the start the conversation from there and and I and keep it front of mind. Yep, yep. That's a good word for all of us. If you're looking for a resource, we had Lee Strobel on a few weeks ago. You can go back and listen to his episode where he talked about his brand new book, A Case for Heaven. That might be a helpful resource for you as you're thinking about the afterlife and what it means to to follow Jesus until the end. Well, coming up next, Brian, we're doing one of our favorite things to do on a Friday. That is a top five list. Can't wait. Stick around for that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And it's Friday. Mm -hmm. And you know what that means. It is time for a... Top five list. five list. We love our top five lists on Fridays. And as you might know by now, one of the reasons we love our top five list is because of our top five theme song. So let's go ahead and listen to that. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. <laughs> Top five. I, still think it's, I, we need, I feel like we need to have like a, the remix. Top five theme song, the remix. See what Absolutely. happens. Oh, that happens would be there. good. Put a little beat to yes. it. A little dance party. Okay. Brian, you came up with this one. So I will let you announce to our listeners what today's top five list is. Yeah. Yeah. I hope this works, Aubrey, because I, I had this epiphany the other day. I, I went top five things that you dislike that most people around us like. Yeah. Right. Like, so it's, it's commonly people are like, Oh, I love. This, it would be like, I know this won't be on either of our lists, but if you want, if you, it's kind of like you zig when, when everyone else zags, mm-hmm, you go, mm-hmm. I dislike Christmas. You're like, right, excuse right, me? Right. So that kind okay. of thing. Pre-Thanksgiving, okay. we could have discussed turkey with this one with you. We but- could have. That would have been a good one. I actually had a friend recently, side note, that told me she doesn't like autumn or fall like there she doesn't you like go. That, decoration she doesn't like so that would be a thing that would be a thing that would fit here so okay. top five list of things that most people like okay uh, that you're like eh i could do without yeah okay all right um uh i'll go first okay okay i'm hesitant on this one because i do know there's the large portion of the population d- that actually doesn't like this but i know there's a huge portion that does so mm-hmm. i'm just gonna throw it out there uh, my number five thing that I dislike that most people like is any scary movie or scary TV show. Interesting. I thought I about putting that movies. on. I actually yeah. almost put that on my list. Did you really? Yes. I don't like horror movies as well. So that's yeah. a good one. I, I, I'm going with that one. Okay. 
All right. right. What is your number five? You know, I'm the sports guy in in the uh, in the uh, radio show here. I'm the one who who loves sports. And a lot of times you could think it's all things sports. But my number five uh, thing that I dislike soccer. Oh, interesting. You've just offended a whole lot of people. I know, especially watching soccer on TV, (laughs) but I'll go, I'll go all soccer. I'm just, my kids played it. I liked it when they were little, but as I, you know, I don't like watching soccer. Okay. All right. Well, good, good for you. I hope the soccer players don't come after you. But you like Ted Lasso. You just don't like. Correct. Okay, my number four, and I I want to be careful about this. It's not the person. I don't know the person, (laughs) but it is the person's acting. I do not like Kristen Stewart. Can you go out in public and just walk around, or is it too intense? Um, it kind of varies. I've I've been in I've been in London for Mm -hmm. a while, and uh, I find it's very different in L.A., New York, London. It's they're they're good examples of how people respond. In New York, they're like. Don't flatter yourself, honey. I was not looking at you. And you're like, great, great. I did not like her in Twilight. I did not like her in this new Princess (laughs) Diana movie. I think she's a terrible actress. She's an annoying actress to me. I am not a fan of Kristen Stewart. I know a lot of people are. I am not. I, I like that you prefaced it with, I'm sure she's a nice person. Like she's listening. Like in case she's I know. listening. Well, she, might, you know, she might love Sailor. She might love the common good. She might be a massive fan. So she, that, that is likely. That is yeah, likely. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, number, what are we? Number four? Oh, uh, I've, yes, mentioned number four. I've mentioned this to you before. Okay. Uh, number four for me is anything pumpkin. Oh, yeah. That's a, that is kind of a cultural thing that you're going against that's pretty so, strong yeah i don't like even carving pumpkins but per, I, i'm specifically thinking here of eating pumpkin pie pumpkin okay. spice pumpkin latte pumpkin yes. anything not your thing you can keep it no 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 yep. no okay okay that's a that's a pretty rebellious one brian wait till my next one all right my number three brian this one is just for you I do not like fantasy football leagues. <laughs> <laughs> please please an- let us know more. I think it is annoying. I think too many of the men in my particular family spend a lot of hours on them, a lot of trash talk on them. I think it's dumb. I don't like it. Can I ask you a question? Uh, of course. Have you ever actually yes. participated? I in fantasy have participated football? to try to bond with my family. The problem is when you don't care about sports or know about sports, you just don't get invested in fantasy football. And so this requires a whole lot for me. So I just guess I throw, you know, teams and names out there that I really know nothing about. Um, so I, yes, lots of people like them. I am not a fan of fantasy football. That that's fair. That's fair. Okay. You could probably guess that I enjoy some fantasy yes, football. I, I'm sure but- you do. That's why I, I put that one on there for you. I, I think you're going to take some umbrage with my number three. Okay, <laughs> well, I'm 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 preparing you in advance for it. <laughs> okay, because you people will not be able if you're at all part of a church. You're going to be like, but I thought you were a pastor, and so how can <laughs> I say this next one? Okay, number three for me, C.S. Lewis books. Whoa! Please no, no, no! Wow, you just dropped a big old bomb, Brian. I've tried to read Mere Christianity, uh, all of them. I, and I get The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Good movies. I never read the books. <laughs> wow. Okay. But okay. I, 
I, like most pastors, will quote C.S. Lewis uh, in, you know, it's kind of like Abraham Lincoln. Like, if you don't know who said something, you just say C.S. Lewis did. <laughs> uh, but I do not like C.S. Lewis books. There you go. Jim or Jerry Root is mad at me over the college. Well, so I have a theory that actually, like, no one reads C.S. Lewis books. They just look up his quotes on, like, quotable.com. Thank you. I don't Thank think you. anyone. May, uh, Jerry, of course, Jerry Root at Wheaton College has. He's the only one. No one else has really read and finished a C.S. Lewis book. I, I, couldn't, I could not agree with you more on that. And we all like to pretend we have because right. we think that's our ticket into heaven. Yes. You do not need to read mere Christianity to get to heaven. Right. Right. So I, you know, I, I think that's provocative, Brian. Well done. You kind of agree with me. That's I, interesting. I, right I, there. I know. I, I'm thinking through like, I mean, I did read Mere Christianity, I think, because I had to at Wheaton. And I have read my kids, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But I got to say, I've, I've never begged to, to go back and read. I did read, was it Surprised by Grief? or uh, Yes, yes. Yeah, I liked that one. But okay. yeah, okay, okay. I, this is provocative. I'm, you're making me think now. Okay. I'm going to offend half of our listeners right now, but my number two, I do not like cats. They freak me out. I mean, I'm allergic to them, but also they just scare me. They're like a little too sneaky, a little too suspicious, a little too uh, emotional. They turn on you. Not a fan of cats. All right. Aubrey, I think I've got another one that's gonna that's gonna cause you some problems Ooh, here. I think. Okay. My number two thing that I dislike that many people like: Great America. Oh, you don't like Great America? I do not. And part of this is my dislike of roller coasters. Like I like okay. a good I like a good water park, but Great okay. America is so roller coaster heavy. It is very roller coaster uh, specific. Yeah. And so I, you know, we've taken our kids to Great America, but interesting, we haven't done it in a while. So I would always be the one to take like the two littles to over to like the more of the kids area while Carrie and Madeline would go on the roller coasters. Right now, I Oh, here's the thing, Aubrey. When I was a youth pastor, uh, one of the highlights would be, you know, you take your youth group to Great America. I wouldn't go. No way. I sent my wife and like my assistant <laughs> who like was one of her good friends and then Come any on. leaders who wanted to go. I wouldn't even go. You're like, I'm not wasting my time there. Why? I got stuff to do. I, I, wow. I, I'll plan the event for you. I wouldn't even go. So Great America, okay. you can keep it. That's a lot of money okay. not well spent right there. Okay. So if you said Disney, I think I would push really, I love really Disney. hard. But I love Great, Disney. Great America. I mean, I love roller coasters, so I like it. But if you don't like a roller coaster, then yeah, you, you're not going to like Great America. Do you have, any, like do you have any, uh, any quick um, honorable mentions? I mean, <laughs> uh, I have a little bit of a repeat of my number four. I didn't like the new Princess Diana movie, but mostly because of Kristen Stewart. <laughs> I know it's very, very popular. Um, th- that was it for me. What about you? Do you have any honorable mentions? Uh, dark chocolate is one. Oh, I oh. hate dark chocolate. I love dark chocolate. And That's this will shocking. be a whole nother segment for us someday, Aubrey, because I know okay. we're both usually fans. The current iteration of the royal family. I've had enough of them. I'm done with them. I know you have strong feelings about the royal family at the moment. Especially the royals who are now living on this side of the pond. I know. I know. You don't love them as much as I love them. I know. That's a whole thing. All right. Number one. What do you got? All right. My number one. I think I will offend half of our listeners right now. Here I go. I do not like country music. Don't tell my heart. My neck is breaking hard. 
never have. Wow. I never will. You You're can't from make Oklahoma. Me. I think that's why everyone around me listened to it all the time. And I just can't. I can't. I can't. I can't with country music. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. You're sorry to your people. See, where I yes. grew up, country music was not big. So okay. uh, I'm, I'm okay with that. Number one for me, Aubrey, and you know this very well about me, uh, but I will insult 90% of our audience <laughs> right now. I dislike, in fact, I hate anything coffee. Yes, that I know that about you. That is that is sad and shocking. Drinking coffee, coffee flavored drinks, uh, coffee flavored food, coffee, anything, anything. The smell of coffee. I dislike everything coffee. Wow. I, I feel like our 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 relationship just ended with that, Brian. I don't know what to say about that, but. I'm okay with it. Not <sighs> a relationship least... ending, but not like a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're sure you're going to have some feelings about this. So let us know on social media what you like that other people dislike. Or wait, I said that wrong. What you dislike that other people like. Let us know if you're mad at us for any things we put on our list. And uh, maybe we'll change our ways. We'll see. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.